0: Good morning again. I'm Taylor Entz, a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and I'm just so glad to be with you worshiping God together. Um, Yeah, so here we are. We've been walking through Matthew. We'll continue to walk through Matthew. We're going to take a break in a few weeks to walk, I think, in six weeks through a five-chapter book, uh, the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's a book of lament that was written um, by the Hebrews about... um, The southern tribes being exiled into Babylon, and about the devastation of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. And so, it'll be just a good time to just hunker down, um, and to you know, uh, Lent is a time traditionally for the church to just to think about its sins, to think about the separation that we've created between us and God, and the problem that exists between us. And and then there, after that, as we sit in that, to think about the fact that our great salvation, the fact that Christ came. And made a way for us to be with God, and in fact is the only way to God. And, and that's really a lot of what we see here. Uh, and then after that, sorry, we're going to finish up in Eastertide, um, come Easter Eastertime, uh, with, with the end of Matthew. So we're, we're walking through Matthew. Um, Peter's really putting the focus on, uh, excuse me, Jesus is really putting the focus with Peter and his disciples on, who do you say that I am? It's the question that Matthew's been asking and continues to ask through his whole gospel. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Um, some say he's Messiah, some say he's prophet, who is he? He invokes fear, as we looked at last week, in so many people, in various ways, who is this guy? Um, so we were in, I think, chapters 9 and 10 last week, we're taking like a hyperspeed jump, ludicrous speed, if you've seen Spaceballs, we're like gone ludicrous speed into, um, from chapter 10 in Matthew to 16, and then next week we have Matt um, Van Zant, who's at a member of Sojourn Heights, so yeah. So, so we're a church plant um, out of Sojourn Heights, and then there's Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Gallery, and then we have a Sojourn Spring Branch too. And, and so we, uh, he's going to come over, and a lot of us know him and, and love him. He's dear to us. He's going to come and preach for the second time here, and, and I'm excited for him for that. And I think he'll be like in chapter 20 or 19 or something. So I decided to, yeah, to take a ludicrous speed jump into, into chapter 16. And I just want to talk about – man – This this is an amazing, um, this is amazing point, not only in Matthew, but in all, okay, here's a fancy word, in all the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, there are four gospels, John's the fourth, John's the only non-synoptic, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called by theologians the synoptic gospels, and they're all very similar, they have differences. And this is the swing point, this passage that Tom just read that we're sitting in for for some minutes this morning, um, is the swing point, or the pivot, or the hinge of Matthew. And it's not only the hinge of Matthew, it's the hinge of, or the pivot of, um, all the synoptics, like I said, and really of the entire Bible, I would argue. And because it's the pivot of the whole Bible, it's really the pivot of all of history, of all of space and time. And so, it's this confrontation that Jesus has, this question that he asks to, to his disciples, um, I want to just briefly, briefly sort of back that up before we jump into the four, the four points quickly this morning. Um, okay, how is it the pivot of Matthew? It's the pivot of Matthew because up until this point, Jesus has been ministering in word and in power. We started with his birth. He grows up. He starts ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. People are like, this is a mighty prophet. These amazing things that he's doing. He's calming storms. He's delivering people of demons. He's healing. He's raising up. He's forgiving of sins. He's, he's ministering with a powerful word of hope. The kingdom of heaven is here. I'm bringing it. I am the king. It's kind of what he's saying. But it's still very enigmatic. And then he's also ministering in power as the king. He's bringing the kingdom and showing us what it looks like. And at this point, he has this question for his disciples. And after this, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, he says, every time. It says every time in the text, right after this. And a- after this, um, after, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ is the Greek way of saying Meshiach, in the Hebrew, Messiah, the anointed one, the one that the Old Testament promised would come and deliver God's people, okay? Um, after Peter's confession in every single case, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says that he began to tell them, which means he told them this time, really for the first time clearly, and then every every other point basically he just kept repeating it over and over again until the cross the son of man i jesus the son of man has come to die he he must be crucified on a roman cross at the hands of the religious elite that's my mission so he goes from his galilean ministry around the sea of galilee or galilee up in the north to walking toward Jerusalem where every prophet goes to die. He's saying, this is my mission. It's the Missio Dei that God has given me as Messiah, and I'm going to die. So in every single one of these, this is the pivot point of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke. And I want to argue that it's the pivot point of all of history and all the scriptures. If you look at the Bible as an hourglass with a fat top and a fat bottom and and a narrow sort of stem in the middle that the sand passes through, if you look at it as an hourglass on its side, though, that's kind of the way that the, you could look at the scriptures that way. And so in their focus, how, do, how, do the, how does the Bible start? I'm going to, just going to pull this a little over here. I'm experimenting these days. How does, the, how does the Bible start? Even for those not familiar with the scriptures, how do they begin? What do they begin with? I heard it from a few people. Creation. So about as big as you can get. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's, I mean, verse one is sort of a synopsis of at least chapter one, but it's, It is a huge beginning, wide and encompassing. And then it narrows fairly quickly to one man, Abram, and his wife, and God's promise to give them um, a son through a miracle because they're very, very old. And out of that comes the tribe of Israel, the people of God, the son of God, Israel. And really, so it narrows fairly quickly in Genesis 12, and all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, you have this narrow stem, this focus on Abram and his descendants through the promised child Isaac and the tribes of Israel, the people of God, the beloved people of God, and all their failings, really. It's an amazingly honest account, a frank account. It's one of the arguments for the veracity, the truthfulness, the integrity of the Hebrew Bible is that no other ancient Near Eastern history that I've studied, uh, and I've looked at a few, no other ancient Near Eastern history is so candid in saying, like, here's our history and it's just a history of failings. That's just not the way those things were written. And so um, it focuses in on this one family who were chosen by God, loved by God, despite their failings. And then it gets to Jesus, this, this one person, Jesus. And in the Gospels we see, as, as Peter says here, he is the promised Messiah, He is the promised Christ, the Christos, He is the one that the whole Old Testament has been pointing toward. And then after that, what happens? After Jesus lives for us, is born for us, live, he's incarnated, lives for us, dies on a, on a Roman cross for our sins, in our place, rises from the dead to defeat death and hell, and, uh, and then ascends to God the Father and sits with him in power. Um, what happens? What's the rest of the New Testament? The church. And so he, Jesus gives his very own spirit to anyone who will believe in him and look to him and his work for them and his person. And then out from there, he says, you will be my disciples to in Jerusalem, and in Judea, in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, and in Samaria, and what? To the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see in Acts, and then in all Paul's letters, and then in Revelation, certainly. And so, we see this creation narrowing to a, to a, a people, Jesus, and then boom, out into a new creation, to all the earth again. And so, this really is, and when you look at the focus of Jesus, it's not this is not... One of the things that this question that he asks his disciples tells us is that the gospels, you'll hear this a lot in liberal scholarship, and you'll hear it a lot sort of floating in the air, you know, these waves that we kind of imbibe without realizing it, Um, education's implications, the things we just sort of hear without hearing them, is that the the gospels are like ancient Near Eastern biographies. They're a story of this man, Jesus. Uh, He was a great prophet, yada, yada. This is his life. No. Actually, if you study ancient Near Eastern biographies, they're not this way at all, and this isn't about the life of a man, you know, birth, growing up, adult life, and then the hinge tells us that. Jesus says here, look, I've come to die. And here we have it in chapter 16, you have over 10 chapters left in Matthew, it's all about Jesus going to die. Um, Even at his birth, he's given gifts that foretell his going to die. In Mark and Luke, it it comes even earlier, where the the pivot of of the book where Jesus starts to walk towards Jerusalem to die to be crucified. He's saying... I'm going tonight. It's my mission. I have been a, I'm a Savior that's come to go to the cross and to defeat death and hell for you. And so these aren't biographies of a life. They are telling us about this Messiah who is on mission to be a vicarious, to live a vicarious life for us, to keep the law of God perfectly in our place, and to die a vicarious death for us, a death that he didn't deserve because he kept the law, and he had God's full favor, favor but we do, and so he died in our place and then to rise in our place and to reign in our place. And so, um, and also you can look at it in this way, and then I'll jump in, okay? You can look at it this way. The whole Bible, the panoply of all the scriptures of all space and time, starting with creation. You have creation, just four words, really, to, to look at, if you're sharing, what is the gospel to a friend? You're talking with him about the run narrative of space-time history of, of the scriptures. Creation, decreation, or fall. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, didn't trust God. They wanted to be God instead. Essentially, ran from Him, cracked that relationship. And once you sever that relationship with God of trust, um, you you start dying. And everything that they were given charge over fell as well because they were given they were stewarding that. And so it fell as they fell. So creation, decreation, and then Jesus comes. What? There's a there's a recreation beginning. He came to make all things new, not just to get us to heaven but to begin the process of restoring all things, which is why where the church goes, those who are redeemed and made right with God again through the precious work, life, and death, and resurrection of Christ, wherever the church goes, there ought to be culture and civilization and areas ought to be renewed. Um, And so that's partly who we are as a people of God. That's what we want. It's why we partner, in part. Um, So creation, -creation, decreation, recreation, recreation. Jesus came to restore and then new creation. And so this is really the hinge of that. And I just want to jump in for a few minutes each of these points, four points. The question, the confession, the keys, and the cross. So if you're taking notes or if you're not and you just want some structure, the question, the confession, the keys, and the cross. Hey, man, this is definitely not, this is a tough text. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this text. This is definitely not going to be a sermon that's going to scratch all your itches for this text. So we're just going to pop on a few things, um, but we can do a Bible study sometime in this. So the question, Jesus, what does he say at the beginning in verse 13 to the disciples? Hey, hey, what's buzzing about me? I've done all these things. What do people say? What are people saying about who I am? And basically, without getting into exactly what these things mean, The word on the street is, you're this awesome prophet that the Hebrew Scriptures have definitely prophesied about, but we're not sure even, man, people are saying you're a mighty prophet, that's for sure. Variations on who exactly that is. Uh, But then what does he do? He turns the crosshairs, as it were, on his own disciples who are with him. And he says, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. But, and that's an adversative conjunction it's turning. It's getting our attention, and it's turning from, hey, I know, I know what the culture is saying about me. I know what the world is saying about me. I know what the academy is saying about me. But really what I'm concerned about, and listen to me, but, is you. And in every synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every time, the you in the syntax in the Greek sentence is emphatic. It's like it's underlined. They didn't underline in ancient texts. But it's underlined, essentially. But who do you say that I am? And this is the question that Matthew's asking, and this is the question, this is the question in life. Who do you say? Not the crowd, not the culture, political, religious, otherwise. Jesus is asking you right now in your seat, listening. You know, if you're listening later online, we record these things. He's asking you. He's concerned about you. Who do you say? that I am. That is the hinge point. It's the pivot of all of life. If we get this question wrong about who Jesus truly is, who he's revealing himself to be, nothing else in life matters. You can get, what, pro- what does it profit at the end of the text that Tom read for today? What does it profit if you get everything else right in life? If you gain the entire world, money, success, living the life, sitting in the hot tub, got the honeys, whatever it is, right? Everything else, security, comfort, you know, your wildest dreams come true. To use a seal of praise from Napoleon Dynamite. Got it all. What does that gain you, really, in the end? If we are eternal creatures, and we are, if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. And Jesus is saying, I am the gatekeeper. I have come to give you life that never ends. And I am the only way to the Father. If you get this question, wrong, nothing else matters, even if you get A-plus in every other category in life. If you get this question right, everything else is okay. He's not promising us an easy life. What, at the end of this, which we'll touch on at the end of the sermon, he, in fact, he says emphatically, I'm going to the cross. If you want to follow me, come that way. As, as one, of our, uh, one of our own said at a dinner um, two nights ago at a friend's house, um, I'm not going to mention names because I haven't talked to her if I can say this, but it just impacted me so much this morning as I heard People think that when we come to Jesus, he gives us everything. You know, Jesus is going to make my life just hunky-dory and great. Actually, kind of what he's saying here is, if you come to me, you must lose your life. Instead, if we come to Jesus, we, we must lose everything. But in finding Christ, we find all. In finding Christ, we find life and all else besides, whether in this life or the next. Okay. In this world you will have trouble. But what does Jesus say? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So this question, he turns the guns on his disciples and on you right now, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? It is the, there, there is no other question. This is it. He always goes after us. If you look at, um, if you fast forward in this book, but it's certainly in John, if you look at John 18, don't turn there, but John 18, and following, you can if you want to. Jesus is about to be crucified, and he's with Pilate, the Roman governor. And he's sort of being interrogated and questioned by Pilate. And he, uh, Pilate says, so they're calling you a king. Are you a king? And Jesus says, are you asking that for yourself or, because, or for others? Because you've heard others asking it. What is he doing there? He's doing the exact same thing. He's always going, he's he's right here in this moment, this guy has power to crucify him or to let him go free. And he says, you wouldn't have that power unless God had given it to you from above. Therefore, the guilt of those who handed me over is greater to you. What is he doing here? He's mano a mano, one on one, going after the heart and the soul of this man, Pilate, who has the power to crucify him. Here is Jesus, not concerned for himself, on mission to be crucified at the hands of evil men, according to the plan of God, to save us, and he's thinking about Pilate, who do you, are you asking this for you? Because if you are, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's get real. It's exactly what he's doing with his disciples here. And who does this remind you of? Gee, God. Because if you go back to Genesis 3, first thing that happens in Genesis 3, after Eve takes the fruit, listens to the serpent, eats it in direct contravention of God's command, she can eat from any tree and she chooses the, the one tree that's forbidden, eats it, Breaks God's heart, breaks creation, gives it to Adam. He, in full knowledge, so his sin is greater, eats it. And uh, the first thing that happens after that, Genesis 3.8. I mean, if you've never read the Bible before and you've read God say clearly, if you eat of this tree, you will die, die. In the Hebrew, it's die, die. You will surely die. Dying, you shall die. You're just expecting, like, the end There's no exodus, there's certainly no revelation, like story over, God's going to start over. No, that's not what he does. Surprisingly, the next verse, he comes after them to take his walk with them in the garden of their love together. These people he's made for himself, for his heart, for relationship, and he says what? The most probing and simple question I think I've ever heard. Other than, who do you say that I am? He says, where are you? Where are you? are you? He goes after them and he starts to elicit, he starts to elicit, he asks them questions and starts to say, where are you? What have have you done? And he engages them in conversation. What is he doing? He's extending relationship to them again in the midst of their sin and he's drawing them out. He's going after Adam and he's going after Eve and then he makes a sacrifice for them to bring them to say, look, something's got to die because of what you've done. I'm not going to kill you. Something else is going to die because of your sin. I'm going to cover your sin. But there are going to be consequences, man, big time. But I'm going to enter the middle of that curse, and I'm going, to make things, I'm going to make things good again. It's going to take a long time. And here we find Jesus. Jesus, he's talking just like God has always talked. He's seeking after you. He's asking that question. He cares about you. When he died on the cross, he died on the cross for you and for you and for you. Not, not just for a faceless horde, okay? He is particular in his atoning sacrifice. He wants you. He loves you. He's calling your name. Maybe. I don't know. That's, a, that's between him and you. But he cares about you. He knit you together in your mother's womb, right? Psalm 139. He created you fearfully and wonderfully. He knows your name. So he goes after Pilate. He goes after Adam and Eve. Um, he goes after us despite our best efforts to run and to escape from him. Um... Psalm 23, one thinks of Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy, toward the end of the psalm, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Okay, that word in the Hebrew follows kind of a, it's a little bit of a weak translation. It actually means to pursue or to hunt down or to chase. Goodness and mercy despite my best efforts to run away, follow me, hunt me down. God's blessing overtakes me. You know, Psalm 139, if I try to hide from you and make my couch, you know, my bed in hell, if I try to make myself comfortable in complete rebellion from you, even there, you're with me. (laughs) I cannot escape you, God. And so Jesus, he's the ultimate expression of that. Jesus is the son of God, We learn from Peter, we learn from Matthew, we learn from all the Gospels. He is God come to us as one of us come for us. How much more, how much closer can you get who took upon himself our sin and our misery and our pain to bring us back to his Father? So, God is a missionary God. Um, Nothing screams that more than Jesus himself and his incarnation. Um, I just want to say, sort of as I lightly apply this and move on to and then quickly three and four, but um, would that we could be, and here's a prayer. I feel like our whole gathering is increasingly becoming just like this prayer to God, and it's so beautiful. I mean, the waves of prayer and worship were just washing over me this morning. Um, I pray my sermon becomes more and more like that, but Lord, would that you would make us a people who are a missionary people because we serve a God who is a missionary God who goes, who is on mission. Who is on mission to to seek and save the lost, to restore those who are broken, to give joy and gladness to those who are mourning, and then to see through their restoration the places that they inhabit, their neighborhoods, where they work, the people they partner with, um, restored. Cultures, shops, places that we patronize, restored. Like oaks of righteousness, providing beauty and strength wherever We go wherever we're planted. Um, Would that we could be a people on mission. Not so much concerned about this, like, I seek your face, Lord. You've taken care of everything, no matter what I feel like, no matter what I'm going through. I'm secure. Having our eyes looking out outward to those that God is putting in our path. What are you doing? What are you saying, Lord, to be a missionary people, to be a people on mission here and abroad, right? I mean, Tom going over our partnership there, our global partnership, helping serve our Syrian brothers and sisters, um, so wonderful, but not forgetting, like, how dare we go over there unless we realize we are a people on mission here. Every opportunity we have is one to express the love of Christ and his reconciling work for us and for the people that he puts in our path. So that's the question. There's, there's no more important question I would, I would offer. Um, briefly, the confession, that's the question. So looking at the confession, verses 16 through 18, um, this is one of the most debated. This is Peter's confession of Christ. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up for the group, and, as he typically does, and speaks for the group um, and speaks well for the group. But it's one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Like when, when Jesus says, you know, in verse 18, is it? He says, And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Is he talking about Peter? Is he talking about Peter's confession? something else. He's talking about himself. What's the deal here? So, let me just touch briefly on, on this and then um, say a few more things. So, is he talking about Peter? Well, yes, okay? You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Um, these are the clear, like, if you just read this, there's the clear meaning. This is the clear meaning of what Jesus is saying. Um, if, you kind of have to do some grammatic, uh, lexical gymnastics to get around the fact that he in some sense is talking to Peter and saying, You are Peter, you're Petros. P- Peter's name meant rock. You're Petros and on this Petra and on this rock. You're pet. So there's a word play. You are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church. Pretty tough to, to get around that. So in some sense at least he is talking to Peter. Um, and also if you look at the early church history, like Peter, he denies Christ as foretold, and then he comes around, and he is the one to basically lead the early church. He preaches the first sermon in Acts 2. If you read the book of Acts, um, 3,000 are saved. He's filled with the Spirit, made bold, and he's going around just like Jesus was, doing greater things, seeing people raised from the dead, uh, seeing people healed, preaching in power. The, the, you know, Jesus is reigning and working through his church in Acts, and Peter is at the helm of that. Very much, and he's, he's there in Jerusalem, he's there in Judea, he's there in Samaria as the church grows, sort of at the helm. So very much, he, he, he does seem to be speaking to Peter and saying, on you, Peter, I will build my church, but also not Peter. Let me say a few things for that. Who do you say that I am? When he asked that question to his disciples, it's, it's, if he were a Texan, he would have said, who do y'all say that I am? It's a, it's a plural, you can't, you can't pick it up in the, I mean, I wish our English translations would use y'all, it's a great word. Who do you say that I am, if you're reading in the English probably, um, doesn't, doesn't show us that it's plural, but it is in the Greek. Um, so who do you, who do y'all say that I am? He's talking to all the disciples, not just Peter. Peter's the one who, in his impulsiveness and in his gregariousness, uh, stands up and says this awesome confession about, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the Living God. And that's very true. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit revealed this to you. you. You haven't discovered it through your own genius, and nobody could have told you this. This is To to believe on Christ as he is is only one thing, given to us by the living God. It's a gift. So if you're believing on Christ, you can't take credit for that. It's a gift. And as we tell people about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, the pressure's off. You're you're not in charge. You you cannot cannot make them see. But God, thank God, he can. He can open eyes. He can um, soften hearts. He can unstop ears. So not Peter, he's speaking to everybody. On this rock, um, this refers at least in part, not just to Peter's person, but to his confession of Jesus as Messiah. I think that's pretty clear in the text, too. Um, because what has Peter just done? It's not just Peter in isolation, it's Peter who's just confessed. Here's who you are, Jesus. You're the one that the scriptures foretold would come. And make us right with God again. You're the one the scriptures foretold would come. that Do what Adam couldn't do. Do what Israel couldn't do. You are the second Adam. As Paul says in Romans 5. You are the true Israel. The true son of God. Anyone who places their faith in you. The true promise of God. Will be saved. This. On this confession. Given by Peter. Jesus will build his church. And what? The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. My church. Through all opposition. Will succeed even through death itself, just as I have. Nothing's going to stop my church because of what I've come to do and because of who I am. So the answer in some, I think, again, this is, this is just skipping over, boo, boo, like a wave runner over this text, man, just touching down. Peter in his capacity as apostle and Peter's confession is what Jesus is saying, I will build my church on. The confessional, apostolic Peter. Um, because but another thing is, like, look, Peter is prominent in the early church, but he, by chapter 15, he's not even mentioned again, basically. He, he fades out of the picture. doesn't cease to become important, but it, the point is, the church is about Christ and what he's done and, and, and his confession. And it's carried on through those who look to him by Paul and others at that point forward. And then Paul kind of takes the mainframe in acts. Up through the end of the book Acts 28, and then what? Paul is sitting in prison at the end of Acts 28. It almost seems like, whoa! Did you not? You ever seen um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Like they're reading in the cave, they're reading somebody, uh, somebody's scrawl, and it's like, and he said, Arr. you know, it's like he just he just dies, and as he dies, he writes. Arr. It kind of that's kind of what it feels like at the end of Acts. It's just like, Arr. it's like, what? Did somebody just leave off accidentally this book? No. The point is, Paul. Okay, Peter's kind of faded out. Paul, one of the pillars of the early church, you know, the the 13th apostle born out of time, as it were, who saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and was shaken and changed. Um, He's in prison, but the church of Christ goes on. The church of Christ goes on because Christ is reigning and he is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Um, This confession is the cornerstone. Christ is Lord. He's not a prophet. He's Messiah. He's the son of the living God and Lord of all. Um, And can I just say, if you look at this phrase, um, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, okay? Um, it, It shows us a bunch of stuff, but one of the things that it shows us is that the church is to be on the offensive and is indeed on the offensive, not playing defense against the world, against Satan, against death and hell, um, against sins, but is going out into a world, gates, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates is a sort of, gates were there for defense, not offense, in a city. It's a city picture. And the gate was put down so nobody could come in. But Jesus is saying, my church is going to be charging, and even that defensive thing on hell itself. And really, if you look at hell, it it means basically death, a portal to death, to eternal death everything that separates us from God, none of that will stand between me and the people I'm going after because of my church, my body on earth, because of what I've done. Um, So the church is on the offensive. Gary Halligan, who's International Justice Mission um, founder and president, he said once, um, he's like, the church is the light of the world, just as Jesus is the light of the world. And what is light but offensive? Like when you turn on, simple illustration, you turn on a lamp, a lamp. Darkness is dispelled. In every place that you can see with the visible eye, light just pushes out darkness. It doesn't physically, with physics, it doesn't work the other way. Darkness doesn't impinge on light. Light dispels darkness. Light conquers darkness. Light is on the offensive. Darkness on the defense. And Jesus is saying, I am coming through death, as Chris said earlier, as he is leading us. Through death, I'm going to defeat death. And so my church will go forward in power in the most unlikely of ways, just as I will go forth in power and conquer all of the enemies you ever need worry about in in the most, in a way that blew the mind of his disciples, of all the religious elite. Nobody, even though it was in the scriptures foretold, expected it because it was so crazy. He didn't come on a war horse to tromp down the enemy and defeat Rome. He came to be defeated, as it were, in our place, to be hung on a Roman cross, and to be a, an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and thereby to fulfill all of those sacrifices that the Old Testament had been doing for millennia, pointing to, pointing to. and he said, look, I am that sacrifice. I'm going to take care of the sin problem. I'm going to defeat everything that stands between you and God, if you will but look to me as your salvation. And then he rose to show God the Father has accepted that payment. I am now victorious, and anyone who looks to me is now victorious over death and hell. Nothing, nothing can stand between me and my people. I am, behold, I am making all things new. And so the church is on the offensive, um, and would that we could be a church, again, like that, would that we could be a church like that, on the offensive, in a, in a winsome, joy-filled, peaceful way, laying down our lives, not on the offensive Sort of wetting ourselves politically, you know, religious right or whatever way the left, you know, tries to get in, um, in the, le- the left side of the church tries to get in bed with, with uh, political powers. Or a health, wealth, gospel, trying to gather and garner um, sort of fit security and comfort that we can see and touch and taste. No, that's not the power source of the church. The power source of the church is just like a seed going into the ground and dying. And once that seed dies, a power is released. It grows up into this mighty oak tree. And that's what Jesus says. He says, my church is going to explode in power all over the globe and into the areas that I planted in one way, just like I did through death. Through death. When we come to Jesus, it's not, hey, come to Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. It's come to me and die and get me. The one way to God, the one way to peace, the one way to... To everything that we run after and scrape after all of our lives, trying to fill this huge void, voracious beings we are, trying to feed on all these things we think will satisfy, but deep down we kind of know it's not going to work because I've tried it a hundred times before, but maybe this time. God made us for himself, and we're not going to be satisfied until we satisfy ourselves in him. And Jesus came to bring us to God and to, and to give us the very spirit of God. And so... Um, Man, I'm, I'm actually going to uh, just pass over, unfortunately, the keys. I'm gonna pa- I've kind of mentioned the cross the whole time. So the keys and the cross, the last two points, because of time, I want to respect that. Um, I'm done. Um, I think I've preached enough. But looking at the question, looking at the confession, looking at what type of church, what, what God has said about the church, remembering that if we get the question, who do you say that I am, right? Nothing else that we're going through is going to defeat us. He's gonna, He's come to make all things new, whether in this life or the next. He will do it, and he is doing it even now. If we get that question wrong, even if we gain the whole world, if we forfeit our soul, which we will if we get that question wrong, if we think that we can come to God or grab the gusto in any other way but through the way that Christ has come to give us, Him, his very self, then we lose. That is the question. Um, and thinking about the confession that Peter made and knowing that On that rock, Peter and his confession, Christ will build a church that will literally cause the kingdom of God to go out and spread out over all the earth, the glory of God, through loss, through privation, through sacrifice, through service, through laying down our lives which have already been won. And that's going to manifest itself in so many different multifaceted ways as, as we work, as we relate to our neighbors, as we... Things become not about ego trip and and proving my greatness, but serving and humility and looking out for the needs of others rather than ourselves, knowing that we're taken care of, we're filled up, pouring out ourselves, picking up our crosses and following him, knowing that that's the power against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Being on the offensive in a thousand little ways, partnerships, work, home, neighborhoods that God's put us in um, and beyond. So that's it. Um, Let me close us In prayer.